200, Richard, 200. I remember being 200, Maynard. Congratulations to the European Skeptics Podcast on reaching 200 episodes. You fool, stop now, quick, stop. Yes, and may you not have a skeptics like a Brexit. There'll be a skepsit there. Yeah. Skeptic. Yeah, 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 don't do that. You're going to go great. Congratulations. No. Congratulations. No, please don't stop. And here's to the next 200 and more. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 200. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Lavin and Pontus Spukman. Sziasztok! Zdravstvíci, dragi naši slušatelji! Oj! Hey, Sarali Hoop! Ó, oh, gyerekek, ez nem gyenge. Akkor én Gábort is szeretném beinvitálni be, be, a beszélgetésbe. Szia, Gábor! Sziasztok! Jó reggelt! Ah, wow! All right, so just to translate for our listeners, I have uh, invited Gabor as well, Gabor Roshko, who was with us on the very first episode as well, four years ago. Woo-hoo. Welcome back, Gabor. Welcome back. Thank you very much. So good Though I don't you. know what you are really celebrating, uh, because I, I, it's if you count in in hexadecimal or binary, it's nothing uh, rounded, you know. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks very much. We, 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 are, we are stuck to these uh, decimal things. <laughs> but that's the beauty of it. You can just choose whatever system you want to, and then you can celebrate every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, exactly, it's the key exactly. to be, for it, for it to be completely arbitrary. It's... <laughs> It's like the the calendar and the New Year's and everything and and birthdays, yeah. It's okay. It's nothing even close to when you're actually becoming some someone a new entity. Anyway, so welcome <laughs> back, everyone. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just I just did this to to remind everyone that I'm still myself, even though I haven't been on the show for a long time. Mm-hmm. Good to be back. Yep, welcome good back to, to you have, too. Thank you, and uh, good to have you back, Gabor, as well. Have you been listening to us in the last yes. four? Yes, I am not listening each and every show, but I try to listen as much as possible, yes. You know that if someone is listening podcasts, then it's overwhelmed with all the podcasts. So oh, yeah. it's impossible to listen all the podcasts every week, but I oh, yeah. try, definitely. And I used to write to the Hungarian audience. Unfortunately, in Hungary, it's not really accustomed to listen podcasts. So that's why I should remind them frequently that, that there is a fantastic podcast out there. That's very nice of you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, you guys probably don't know half of it, but really, Gab- Gabor is uh, promoting us like crazy. <laughs> uh, well, that's always good to know. <laughs> We've got very a nice. good advocate in, in the hundred. Nice. Yeah. Maybe we should remind listeners uh, who Gabor is, uh, Andras, if, if they haven't been yes. with us since the first episode. Yeah, apart from um, me being very lucky to call Gabor my friend, and uh, we've been 
we we've known each other for 20 years or so. Gabor is the president of the Hungarian Skeptic Society. And when we started this show four years ago, he was the chair of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations as well. Uh, this was the very reason why we chose to interview you first, Gabor. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you remember that. Yeah, so a lot has changed since. We're still in the board of the Hungarian Skeptic Society together, trying to do as much as possible. But uh, you've since been much less active on the European level. How's that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just the last week you interviewed the new leader, Claire. So it's it's, it's just a very nice framing. Well, in fact, uh, I had some personal problems, let's say, uh, when I was dealing with skepticism, that that, uh, the world changed so much that I lost a bit uh, the direction, you know, how to go on. And uh, some weeks ago, there was a skeptic conference in your hometown, András, Székesfehérvár, which was the 25th, again, uh, celebration. And, and of course, I, made, I couldn't attend it. I, I made a lecture there, and uh, and it was just about this that uh, I think now we we do have some problems. And uh, I was speaking about the different uh, versions of skeptics: skeptics one or zero, two dot zero, and three dot zero. And and I think we are now looking for new ways how to deal with uh, this post-truth word because the things what we used to use so far, they are not working. You know, at the very beginning, we tried to ask for the evidence and we we believe that if we are spreading information or knowledge, then it will be enough. But then we realized that it's not enough. Then we uh, we figured out that we should teach skepticism and and how uh, science works. And I think now uh, after this uh, or or in this post-true world, we have to realize that, that people are very much uh, waiting for tales or stories instead of facts. So even if they know what is the fact, then they tend to say me that, okay, okay, you are right, but but it doesn't matter. The, the big big story is what, what matters. So somehow we have to be able to package the, the truth and the science into stories. Hmm. Excellent point. And uh, especially now that everything becoming more about getting people to watch as many stories like Netflix, Amazon Prime, everybody is on their phones uh, watching, following this series, documentaries, whatever. We've got to create one big documentary about skepticism, eh? Mm. (laughs) With appealing storyline. Yes, with appealing storyline, it has to it has to be emotional. It has to reach people on an emotional level, otherwise they they'll just ignore it. And and that's tricky. You should have to be emotional, but still factual and still correct and still uh, scientific. That's that's a challenge. Uh, yeah, it's a challenge for us because because I think for several years we believe that that emotions are something like bad. Mm. We have to deal with facts instead of emotions, and now we we should realize that. Yeah, yeah, of course, facts are the most important, but we should package it with emotional stories. Yeah. This is very tricky because it's very easy to, to go to the other side, you know, mm. so to the dark side. Or, <laughs> so, so we have to stick to, to the facts really, but, but package them correctly. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and and what you mentioned about us distancing ourselves from emotions, all that got to us to was this perception, this public perception that skeptics are these emotionless machine, thinking machines yeah. who question everything. And now we have to tackle that as well, that we have this public perception about ourselves that we, we need to somehow break down. <laughs> yeah, we have to become more human. So Yeah, that more is like true. hippies. That is uh, very I, I, true. I'm a human. I'm a human. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. No. No. Uh, we have to create the perception that we are human. Inside, of course, we are these uh, lizard people from outer space. <laughs> yeah, and droids as well. Mm. Uh, but but uh, the droids are are just the slaves of the lizard people. Alien so, droid lizard people. Yes. Yeah, but what I really think is that. Still, you, Gabor, mentioned that some of the things that we've tried over the years have turned out not to be working. But there are a lot of things that can at least provide us with a good segment of the work that we want to do. And uh, this is what we believe to be the case about running a podcast as well. There is a need for things like a podcast. There is a need for things like YouTube videos, uh, debunkings. There is a need to do educational stuff as well. We've interviewed a lot of people in the last four years. And one of the things that stands out to me the most was an interview. And I had to do uh, conduct the interview myself. The interview with Sander van der Linden was one of the most eye-opening interviews for me mm-hmm. about pre-bunking. That is an amazing concept that I, I'm completely mm-hmm. stunned by. And it's so easy and so obvious at the second look. But things like that, moments like that, interviews like that, absolutely make it worth doing, I think. So what's your favorites, guys, in the years, if I can ask you that? Well, as we have Gabor here, I, I remember in, in uh, London when we decided we were going to start a podcast, we were going to the pub in the evening and we told you about that, Gabor, and I remember, so, and you were very, oh, guys, that's a big, that's a great commitment. Yeah. I really <laughs> think about this because this is, you know, it's <laughs> a big thing. So, yeah, we thought about it for five minutes and here we are four <laughs> years later and we are here. <laughs> Now we're stuck in it, so we cannot do anything. (laughs) I have a second... You wanted stories, right? So I have a second story with Gabor as well. And that was when I was in um, Budapest for work. And I met up with you guys and a few others in the evening. Yeah. And uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, Gabor. But I think you came up with the phrase, poking the Pope. Because you said, how long are you going to keep poking the Pope? And and out of that, we invented this new segment there and then, Pontus Pokes the Pope. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, you made it in the last show as well, yes. Yeah. It was terrible, by the way, the, the stories what you mentioned. Okay. <laughs> no, I yeah. think it's a very sweet story. <laughs> it is indeed. But you know, the, uh, what, what I have told you, that, that it will be very hard, I think it is really, and that's what people generally don't understand. Possibly that's the, that's the attitude why we don't have a Hungarian one. Is it correct, Andras? Because I didn't really believe that we could do that, but, and I'm very happy that you could do that. In fact, uh, I was very jealous when you decided to do that, but, uh, but I think it was a good, a good choice that Andras was not waiting for me to do a, an international podcast. You know, at this point, the reason why we don't have a Hungarian podcast is because I am involved in doing an English-speaking podcast and I don't have the time and energy to do two. 
I'm afraid I would I would have to quit doing this one in order to to start a Hungarian podcast. But mm. uh, don't don't do that. But but let's advertise no, it for a Hungar- <laughs> for our Hungarian people. So may I may I switch to Hungarian for a, for a sentence? Sure. Gyerekek, csináljunk már egy magyar podcastot létszíves. So what I said that hey guys, let's do a Hungarian podcast at last. <laughs> yes, yeah, I definitely agree. It's uh, it's about time. Very good. Talking about it's about time and great moments, one of our great supporters, Susan Gerbic of uh, the Guerrilla Skepticism Wikipedia fame, we, we started together something that ended up being called the About Time Tour. I don't think we would have gotten there without the podcast and uh, without doing this because we've connected with a lot of people along the way while we were touring Europe after the after the 2017 European Skeptics Congress in Rotswaf that we jumped into a car with Susan and Mark Edwards uh, and uh, Lubomir Baburov and we started touring Europe and went went through a couple of countries everywhere we went basically we had connections thanks to the podcast mm. and some of those people are still our followers and even supporters and um, we are very grateful for that yeah thank you very much guys yeah we've made a lot of friends during these four years i'm, qu- I'm quite overwhelmed by all the congratulations and, and nice messages that we have received for this episode and you will hear that yeah we will play those messages throughout the episode here today a lot of them came from australia actually this uh, time because last weekend was skepticon in melbourne so a lot of our friends were there not just the australian skeptics but also the skeptics guide to the universe and other people were there susan gerbic you mentioned she was there as well and so we got um, quite a lot of messages being recorded in connection with the skepticon this year and one day we have to go to australia as well for for the next skepticon maybe maybe next year what do you say, guys? <laughs> I'm up, up for it. For it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to just say that, um, just to highlight what Gabor said and what Pontus said about how much work it actually is and, and how sometimes you just don't feel like doing it at all. <laughs> 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 and you're not ready and, you, and you're too tired. Um, so, sometimes it is a lot of work, but other times it's a lot of fun. And it's, I'm so happy that we stuck to it and we've done 200 episodes. I am very... I think mine will be very obvious and it was my favorite well one of my favorite things was to win the uh, Occam Razor award. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that was I think good. that was super special. Just the the recognition. I, I didn't expect it. Mm. In fact, it was one of those things, you know, like do you see those people receiving Oscars and they they say oh and then they said after that, oh no, I didn't think I'm going to get it. But we really didn't think we we were going to get it. So no. so much so that we didn't prepare a speech. No, we were just like we had not eh. prepared anything <laughs> and when we were actually announced to be the winners, yeah. <laughs> I had to wing it and it came out as such. So um, it really, it really was a uh, silly moment that we had Unlike upstairs. the rest of our show yeah. that's well prepared always. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm still waiting for the moment that when we're done f- recording an episode, I, I would love to at least once feel like, okay, this has gone well. Uh, I think we've... <laughs> We've done a good job here. Uh, I'm still waiting for that moment. At some point, it will come to me. Andres, but maybe you haven't uh, felt this, but if you think about these 200 episodes, 
then uh, that one you you made it well. So <laughs> so may, maybe you have problems with each and every episodes, uh, which I don't think why you believe that, by the way. But doing this, uh, you know, two hundred episodes, it's really fantastic. And and uh, a guy is uh, telling it to you who said at the very first moment that possibly you will not be able to do that, <laughs> <laughs> as you remember Pontus well. Yeah. So congratulations for that. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. But uh, since it's early morning for you, and it's a work day today, so I'm pretty sure you've, you'll be busy soon preparing for your day. So uh, it's been a pleasure. I really hope that uh, we will meet again soon talking about urgent business in the, in the Hungarian skeptic movement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks for being a listener and a supporter. Thank you all for this show. We love you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank a lot. you, Gabo. Yeah. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Take have a good day. All right. I I didn't want to say it while he was on, but Gabor has been like a mentor to me in the years yeah. that, and especially at the beginning when I I was just a young guy, no one took me seriously, and the Hungarian skeptic skeptics movement back then when we started uh, this whole thing was mostly concentrated around high-level academics, like members of the, the Academy of Sciences and, and those people. I was feeling like an outsider, or like an imposter, like, I, what, what am I doing here? And um, he was one of the few who saw that in, in other people, in, not just in me, but in other people as well. And uh, we started building the movement together to be more like a grassroots thing. And this is how we brought to life the Hungarian Skeptic Society together. And we're still still in the board. He's an amazing guy. He's a great guy. I don't know him as well as you do, of course, Andras, but I always uh, enjoyed talking to him. He's always got interesting aspects on, on skepticism or on life in general. Great, very great insights, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, I've learned from him is how to be very accurate in your approach to data and trying to see everything from different angles as well. He always tries to cover all the bases, and I'm very grateful to have him as a friend. But uh, we, we're going to have to move on because we have a complete show prepared for you, dear listeners. As Pontus has already mentioned, we are so lucky to have such a great support out there among other podcasters and uh, skeptics uh, from, from across the globe. A lot of them have taken the time and energy to record greetings for us on the occasion of our 200th episode. And uh, there are so many of those that we will have to do this in installments throughout the show. So Pontus, why don't we start with the first batch and then we can use it as separators between the different segments. Absolutely, yeah. We cannot tell you guys how much we appreciate all your support and you are all lovely. We love you all. Hi guys, Annika and Scotty Harrison here. Congratulations on reaching your 200th episode. And did you know it's also 200 years since the first steamship tried to cross the Atlantic? Albeit only a small fraction of the voyage was made with steam, but... Anyways, we love your work and wish you all the success and all the best for the next 200. Bye! Bye. Guys, hey, it's Jay. Congratulations on your 200th episode. 200! 200! <laughs> Looking forward to the next 200. Kara here, congratulations. Everything they just said. Ding. 
Jelena, Andras, Pontus, congratulations. You've done an amazing job over time and space, in your case, to reach this uh, amazing milestone of 200 shows. I really uh, think that uh, the European skeptics uh, scene would not have been the same without you, and uh, I congratulate you on everything you've done, and I hope to see you again in the very near future. All right. As uh, we've we've also mentioned, we do have a, a complete show uh, prepared for you. So, as usual, we will start with this week in skepticism. In 1979, it was a great day in history. December 9th, 1979. On this day, the eradication of smallpox was certified, marking the first eradication of any human disease ever. And you might think that the smallpox is similar to chickenpox, but that would be like comparing a simple cold with fever. And uh, was it bad? Yeah, it was like a really a bad thing that claimed between 300 and 500 million lives. Wow. Smallpox killed rich and poor alike. In fact, smallpox uh, have been found on the mummified body of Pharaoh Ramses V of Egypt, which was 3,000 years ago, guys. Mm. And just in the 18th century, it killed five different kings, changing the the course of whole history. Of those infected with smallpox, normally 20-60% died from the disease. The disease didn't care whether you were famous or uh, poor or like uh, famous politicians like George Washington, Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln and the Soviet Union, which I didn't know about. Joseph Stalin contracted smallpox. And you could actually tell sometimes by the disfigurement if the people were infected. However, even if you did recover, the survivors were often left blind, deformed, and scarred for life. In fact, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you might know about the grayscale, a deadly illness that was portrayed there, and it was inspired by the smallpox. And now the smallpox has been eradicated. However, uh, US and Russia refuses to kill the virus. They keep the virus in the labs. Well, we're not sure why, but that's a question for another show. <laughs> yeah, I think so. There we go. It's uh, it's one of the reasons why a great portion, the greatest portion of American native people were wiped out. It wasn't by active killing by the Europeans. It was by smallpox, mostly, mm-hmm. and influenza and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. The fatality rate among the, the Native Americans was up to 18 or 90%. Wow. Yeah, but it's fantastic that it's now gone, and uh, it is. Yeah, science works. Bloody hell, <laughs> bitches! Yeah, <laughs> Wait, tell me one alternative uh, medicine that has accomplished something like that. Doesn't yeah. exist. It doesn't, but it doesn't mean that uh, people don't believe it, that there has to be something like that. Oh, that's true. It's just even though it's ridiculous, it's mm. it's just what people believe. Mm. All right, but vaccination works and i believe we will get back to that mm. <laughs> we will this show Always. yes all right thank you very much yelena okay okay after uh, running a couple of other greetings i think we will move on to our next segment Hi, this is Susan Gerbig, all the way from Melbourne, Australia, wishing the ESP the best 200th birthday ever. That's a very strong Melbourneian accent you've got there. You're not from Melbourne. She's a fibber. 
Hello, this is Sean Slater from the twice Ockham Award-winning Edinburgh Skeptic Society. A hearty congratulations on reaching 200 episodes of the European Skeptics Podcast. It's just a shame that you have to spoil your show sometimes by talking in impenetrable accents. But in your defence, you don't have Brian from Glasgow Skeptics on too often. Seriously, you all do amazing work in helping promote science, rational thinking and scepticism. You help build bridges across disparate, far-flung communities, and you really are a great resource for a whole continent. So take a bow, and here's to another 200. Until we meet at QED next year, Swanja. This is Heidi Robertson from the Northern Rivers Vaccination Supporters, wishing the European Skeptics podcast a very happy 200 episode anniversary. All right. I would really like to hear you, Pontus, poke the Pope. So, in the US, there are new laws in 15 states that open up the possibility to bring lawsuits for abuse that has happened way back in the past. And this is really good. And as I've said before, you can't expect victims of abuse to come forward very quickly, especially if they are abused when they are children. Often you you don't realize what's happened to you, you can't put it into words, or you feel ashamed and guilty and you think you were part of the problem. So long statute of limitation times, or even better, no limitations at all, is necessary for to catch these scumbags in the Catholic Church. But uh, it's, it's interesting because these new laws have opened up a whole new boom for U.S. lawyers. And there is a beginning avalanche with court cases growing in the U.S. now. It all, even TV ads and billboards asking, were you abused by the church? So all the lawyers are coming up now. It's a strange other side of the coin of this is that a lot of lawyers are getting very rich on finding these victims and making sure that they get their justice. So Associated Press estimated that it could result in thousands of new cases against the church and more than $4 billion in payouts for the Catholic Church. That serves them right. <laughs> oh think. my God. Yeah. I think we can establish that, that opportunism has no limits. Amazing. So that's a new uh, threat to old Frankie, the Pope. <laughs> Even for the Catholic Church, $4 billion is quite a, a big amount. And um, Francis is getting on in years. He's turning 83 just in a few weeks. And as we record this, the Vatican is deep in the preparations to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Frankie's ordination as priest. Mm. So, so that's happening. And just in case something should go wrong with that, the Los Angeles Archbishop José Gómez president of the U.S. Conference of uh, Catholic Bishops, and we've mentioned him before, he has officially asked all U.S. bishops to pray for that event. If you pray for it, then it works. Oh, definitely. Yeah. However, there's one other thing. There's one man in the Vatican trying to catch up with modern times. He is a priest known as Father Robert, and he, he is apparently a podcaster, so maybe we should ask him on the show. He's also a gamer, and he was reportedly so appalled by the language between gamers online that he decided to do something very new. He has gotten the church's blessing to create Vatican's own official Minecraft server. That's more like it. 
I'm um, I'm myself a more more of an Age of Empires kind of person. Okay. <laughs> I don't think Sorry. that may be on the Vatican's list of things to do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But by creating his own uh, or the Vatican's own server, he says he wants to quote foster a less toxic community end quote for the kids out there. Maybe he's a bit of a cool guy, but then again, and may- maybe I'm just a bit of a cynic, but why do I get a bad feeling about a Vatican priest trying to engage with children over the internet? I don't know. It's it's, it's totally unsubstantiated. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I got today. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And uh, let's see who else has some very nice greetings for us. Hello, it's Maynard here from the Skeptic Zone podcast. Occasionally, I turn up and do some sceptical stuff. But let me, I just woke up this morning, my goodness me, the ESP podcast is having its 200th episode. And I immediately went back to bed. Man, it's impressive. You just got to lie down when you think of that. Congratulations on 200 great episodes. Hello, ESP hosts, and thank you very much for all the work you have done in the last 200 episodes, and hopefully you will keep doing on for at least another 200. You keep us all informed, all on top of the ball, and all in the know when it comes to skepticism in Europe and the skeptic movement in general. So once again, thank you, and good luck for the next 200 episodes and more. This is Claire, President of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, and I approve this message. This is Trish Han from the Skeptic Zone, and I would really love to wish the uh, ESP podcast a massive congratulations for reaching 200 episodes. It's a massive milestone, and they've done really well to get that far. All right, uh, let's move on to the news. I think um, one of the hottest news this week is the Climate Change Conference, COP25. (laughs) You see what I did there? Yeah, yeah, hottest, yes, yes. So it's happening in Spain. It was supposed to be hosted by the government of Chile, but uh, since uh, things got a bit chilly there... Oh, Oh, whatever, (laughs) Andres, please. All right, I should stop. (laughs) Never mind, so... um, Yeah, this gives it a certain amount of actuality. However, do you remember right around the time we started this podcast four years ago, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, the same thing was taking place in in Paris, Mm. uh, where they framed the the, the Paris Agreement. Mm. Well, that is something that out of 196 entities, I'm not saying countries because one of the entities is the European Union, for example... 196 entities at the negotiating tables and 195 have already signed in agreement. The problem is that uh, not much have been achieved since. So this is why the small and yet great Greta Thunberg needed to start this uh, bit of a revolutionary action, the climate strikes. It has gained massive support all over the world. But what I wanted to talk about is a recently published paper. A team of American scientists recently published an evaluation of past climate models in the light of historical climate data. And they found that an overwhelming majority of the models were pretty accurate in predicting temperature rises in the last 50 years. So what's good about this is it was the dawn of computer science, basically, when they started using computers 
to uh, put together climate models and the calculations had to be because there's so much data and there were so many factors to work with that uh, they needed computing power and the computing power has grown exponentially since the 1970s when the first evaluated model was published but what's also pretty great about that is that in the last 50 years there have been a massive amount of actual data measurements, temperature measurements, energy fluctuations. And they found that 14 out of 17 papers were within a very limited range of errors when it comes to predicted climate change. Mm. And that gives us a clue of how well we know what we're talking about when it comes to climate change mm. and what we are facing in the future. When we talk about how extreme weather event events will become more frequent, yes, based on these models, this is the case. So I think this is the last straw that we needed to really be sure that we can rely on those models. Mm. No, and it's very important to remember this as well and to know that the, the models are accurate because that's very often what you hear from the climate change deniers is that, oh, it's exactly. just computer models, they, they, it's just theory, it doesn't work, you can't rely on that, reality is too complicated, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. It, it is Reality is very complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. It, it is very complicated, but it's not more complicated than we actually do have models that work. And we can, in a small way, look into the future and say, these are going to be the consequences if we don't make any changes. And one of the other things that, that people usually use as an argument against the case of climate change is that we cannot even predict weather, let alone climate. But that cannot be further from the truth. Mm. Because predicting weather accurately is much more difficult of a task. Because we, you cannot work with trends. And, by the way, short and long-term weather predictions have improved massively as well in mm. the last yeah. 20 or 50 years. So screw you, whoever you are, uh, denying that climate change is real. It is real, and it's time to act. Good. Okay, so... Ed that Ernst has made it onto our 200th show with his story about etiopathy. He published uh, an article recently about new so-called alternative medicine. Oh my gosh, do we need oh, any yeah, more yeah, alternative yeah. medicine now, lives? No. Of course, of course. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, apparently this particular alternative medicine was founded in 1963, so I haven't heard about it. Have you heard about it? Etiopathy. No, no, no. Right. No, no, no. Anyway, it is a method of reasoning to determine the cause of health problem and remove them acting on them. And now let me just explain that to you. The word etiopathy comes from Greek word etia, which means cause, and pathos, which means suffering. In short, etiopathy prioritizes trying to find the cause for a pathology rather than getting rid of its symptoms. But, but every medicine should do that. Right. Uh, the ethos of etiopathy is that the only way to prevent problem from recurring is to treat it at the cause. According to this approach, if we uh, don't go back to the source of the problem, patients run the risk of relapse. So far, so good, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where it gets a bit hairy. Etiopathy allows, allows practitioners to treat the majority of common pathologies 
thanks to an exclusively manual treatment approach involving massage of particular points and thus avoiding medication and side effects. Uh oh, red oh. flags. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Tackling the root of the problem, right? <laughs> Let me just say what a lot of bullcrap. They claim to, so etiopathy, uh, what's interesting about the article that uh, Edzard Ernst relying on, that the article doesn't really, it hasn't been very strongly explicit about stuff. And they go, etiopathy can be used to complement, complement, I highlight that word, classic medical treatment to help treat problems such as joint problems, vertebral problems, digestive problems, urinary problems, gynecological issues, general health problems, migraines, insomnia, anxiety. Now, there was there was no trace of evidence, uh, any s- studies that support these claims. Uh, surprise, any surprise, I'm shocked. Nothing, yeah. not one little tiny thing. Sounds good, though. Sounds great. <laughs> but nothing but hot air. Yeah, right. Sounds very non-specific. I don't even realize what they're doing. They're just saying massaging, stuff. essentially <laughs> massaging, massaging, okay. massaging the area that's hurting. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, it's not always advisable, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can totally right. Like if you yeah. say you've got like an open wound and the blood is gushing out of there, I yeah, don't massage, massage it, this please. Don't start thing. massaging it. <laughs> yeah. If you have a little tiny foreign material under your skin and it hurts really badly, please don't start massaging it either. No. Yeah. <sighs> or the knife that sticks out from your back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's terrible. <laughs> massaging yeah. the knife. The massage therapy out. for, for being stabbed in the back. <clears throat> okay, back to some uh, real medicine then. I know we talk about measles on every episode, but especially now there's lots of news and we have to, I'm afraid. The WHO has published their official number of deaths for last year, 2018. They estimate that last year in the world there were nearly 10 million cases and 142,000 deaths. But also, they say, compared to the last year, 2019 is three times worse. That is terrible. That is really, really terrible. It's worth noting that these numbers are the estimate total numbers, not what is officially reported by the authorities. So that makes it tricky and you may hear different numbers, but it's very different to to talk about confirmed cases and estimated total cases. The confirmed numbers are probably just one-fifth of the total cases that's out there. One reason that that is the case is that a lot of time the cause of death is very often the complications of the disease, not from measles itself. You don't always die from measles directly. What you die of is like pneumonia or encephalitis and other uh, follow-up things that happens to you once you've uh, contracted the measles. And the other thing about measles we also have to comment on and follow up on is when it comes to Samoa. Because we talked about it last week and uh, there's a lot of news uh, developing there at the moment. The latest news is that we now have uh, 70 deaths so far in Samoa, which is uh, almost double what we reported last week. The number of cases is closing in on 5,000, which may not sound like too much, but it's actually 2.5% of the 200,000 inhabitants. 
That means that just since last week, another 1% of the total population has contracted measles. And if that was France, for instance, that would equal 700,000 people in one week. So the situation is so bad now that the, the authorities has declared a state of emergency. And they even closed down the government on Thursday and Friday last week so that all civil servants could focus on the ongoing vaccination campaign. The efforts have been tremendous and, and the last number is that Samoa has gone from 30% vaccination rate of children to 90% in the latest report, just in about a month or one and a half months. Still, we know we want to go to 95% or above that because that's the rate you need to reach to contain the, the disease. So, how come the vaccination rate in Samoa was so terrible in the first place? There's been a little bit of many different things, really, to contribute to this. There has been, as we said last week, a very persistent anti-vaccination propaganda coming from a couple of individuals. And one person, called Edwin Tamasese, has been arrested, charged with incitement against government order because he was spreading this uh, propaganda. Tamasese has urged people to use vitamin A instead of vaccines, because it's more natural, I guess. But that's only one part of the picture. If we go back last year, there was a very unfortunate incident. Two nurses last year were sentenced to five years in jail for mixing the measles vaccine with a muscle relaxant anesthetic instead of water which led to the death of two children. And of course, this created a vaccine scare that was very easy to exploit by anti-vaxxers like Thomas Ese. Also then, the government has been criticized for not acting effectively and quickly enough on the falling vaccination rates once that happened. So it's sort of been a, a perfect storm of anti-vaccination news or sentiments in the country, and that's why they are now in the terrible situation that they are. Hmm. Yeah. But in some places of the world, it's not only the anti-vaccination. The risk for anti-vaccination is probably higher where some kind of uh, religious background is there that bans such an intervention. Hmm. But mostly it's countries where... There is a general well-being, very high level of sanitation, and people have no idea what a certain disease is like when it's a full-blown disease and a full-blown epidemic. Yeah, One of those, I think, is polio, where people, since the different vaccinations against polio have been introduced, they have no idea what it's like why people used to die at very young age and why iron lungs were in frequent use before the, the vaccination came about. This is why it's very alarming to see in some places that polio cases have been reported at very high levels, unexpectedly high levels. The World Health Organization has recently issued a report that uh, covers some of the countries of Europe um, and mentions them as highly susceptible to polio still. Those countries are Romania, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Ukraine. It's very scary for me because they are all very close to us. To Hungary, yeah. Yes, we have a constant connection in a certain way, but it's a bit worrisome. 
However, there is something to be done. We need to make sure that people get get their vaccinations. And these are the countries, because they are among the poorer countries of, of Europe. For them, there is another risk, even though mostly people get vaccinated. There are two types of vaccinations against polio. Polio, it's caused by a virus, and it results in paralyzation of the individual at some point. And the iron lungs that I talked about were necessary at some point. Their breathing start, stopped functioning uh, properly because of the lack of um, innervation. So there are two ways of vaccinations. One is an intravenous vaccination, and um, it's an inactivated poliovirus. And the other one is a weakened poliovirus that is given by mouth. Now, in poorer communities, the OPV, the orally given vaccination, is much more frequent the WHO recommends that everyone should be vaccinated in order for polio to be eradicated. There is an eradication program. It's called the Polio Endgame Strategy. By 2023, the WHO, the World Health Organization, wants to get rid of polio, period. But there are problems. When it comes to places like Europe, and these places are well connected to the rest of the Western world. So this is why it's an actual risk, because if uh, vaccination uptake lags behind the other countries, then those other countries can get into trouble with uh, local transmissions as well. The other problem that I wanted to mention is something that is called a circulating vaccine-derived pathogenic strain. And that means that when the oral polio vaccine is given, it's an attenuated, a weakened virus when that happens, they can basically transmit it to other people in the community. Now, the problem is that uh, viruses evolve. As it circulates, it can evolve into a virus that can go into the phase of paralyzing the patient. It's, it's a very rare thing to happen, but still, it's an issue. The WHO thinks that since 2000, more than 10 billion doses of OPV, the, the oral polio vaccine, were given to 3 billion children worldwide. 13 million cases of polio have been prevented. That means that disease has been reduced to 99%. During that time, the vaccine-derived poliovirus cases have been fewer than 760. So it's a risk analysis that has to be done. And you say that the benefit versus the risk makes it absolutely important to go on with the vaccinations, even if it's just an oral polio vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complex matter there, and it's hard it to explain... Uh, Especially to the one person who gets this vaccine-derived polio, then it's really hard to explain why it was worth it. You can't, of course. For that person, it wasn't. But um... Yeah, but we need to think in terms of populations. In a lot of countries, polio vaccine is compulsory. I don't know about your countries. Um, I don't think we have... In Sweden, I don't think anything is mandatory in that sense. Uh, but, ah, okay. it, but it's so the vaccination rates are so high, so it might as well have mm -hmm. been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Polio is a serious thing. If you, if you want to have a better idea of what it, would, what it used to be like, please watch the Vaccination Chronicles yeah. produced by the Australian skeptics and Richard Saunders. It aims to give an idea of what it would be like not to have these vaccines around. Yeah. It, it is available on, on YouTube. We will put that link it in is, the show yes. notes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm. Okie dokie. Listener Matthias from Belgium contacted us apropos our discussion last week around assisted death. 
and he sent us a link to a fascinating story about Marieke Vervoort. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. She was diagnosed with reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is a very painful and debilitating disease, causing extreme pain, swelling, limited range of motion, and changes to the skin and bones. In 2008, Vervoort went through the paperwork and was approved for assisted death or euthanasia, but she didn't go through with it immediately. Instead, she felt relieved that she now had this way out whenever she would decide that it was too much to bear, that her disease were becoming too severe. But the story doesn't end there. She was she started competing in wheelchair races and she won eventually the Paralympics in 2012 and had a fantastic career with beating several world records, winning other medals in international competitions. She also wrote two books about her life in sports and her situation. But eventually the disease became too unbearable and on 22nd of October this year, just like six weeks ago, she went through with it and uh, she died by euthanasia at home in Belgium, surrounded by family and friends. It is a fascinating story and highlights a lot of the aspects of assisted deaths or euthanasia. And we will link to a very long and excellent article about her in the show notes. I think it's a must read if you want to be well informed about uh, this subject. Okay. This is a subject, it's a very interesting but also very complicated subject, placebo. And how there might be an end to placebo that is coming, but not placebo effect per se. Because I think placebo effects still exist but the structure of the trials, the clinical trials going forward. The reason why I say that is because there have been a movement in um, the developed countries, especially England and America, where the medical professionals would look at the data that was collected about the patients treated and untreated, both really, I guess. And this data can be used instead of placebo effect. Now, let me just quote something from the article because I, I don't think I'll be able to, to say it as good as the article does. The, the argument around placebo effect and why we should get rid of it was around the efficacy and how ethical it is to use placebo effect. Because if somebody is really desperately looking for a medication, right, and they sign up for a trial, you know, do or die, and they get placebo, they and they die, <laughs> or whatever. It's not a particularly great way to go about testing the medication. Anyway, mm. so the, the point is to get the medications onto the market to the patients without this placebo control group and just bypass it somehow. Anyway, so I'm going to quote now from the article. The potential solution to the ethical quandary raised by the placebo group is on the horizon. The digitization of health records means real-world evidence such as doctor's notes and pathology reports could be used to create a synthetic control arm to replace the existing control arms. Wow. This means rather than having patients taking placebo in a clinical tri trial, the same results can be achieved by identifying patients in real world at the same stage of illness and within similar demographic. The same methodology that would usually be applied to analyze a control group can be applied to real world data to generate results that can be compared against the new treatment. For instance, this could involve analyzing the efficacy of the real-world treatments being received by patients 
with certain stage of cancer, end quote. So this is a pretty interesting and exciting way to develop drugs. And I think, so in the article, they mentioned that there was already a drug that has been using the real world data and was approved by the FDA in the United States to go on the market. I don't think it was like a cancer drug or anything like that. It wasn't as serious. But still, it did happen. And so it will happen more and more often. And better the data, the medical data collected is, better the results will be. And especially so in, a, in for example, England, of course, there is NHS and the database, the database uh, that the NHS keeps. However, of course, there's all these issues around the data protection because this data, uh, the data that is kept, medical record data, is very, very highly sensitive. And so how are they going to go around that? I really don't know. And that will be one of the challenges. But nevertheless, I'm sure at some point the scales will be tipped and this control group that will take that is currently taking the placebo will no longer exist and the, the clinical trials will change as we know them. Wow, that's very yeah. that's fascinating. Indeed. Yeah, I'm sure this new methodology will not totally replace the use of uh, controls or placebo controls, but it, I'm sure it can be used in some cases if they get it really reliable yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. Hmm. all right one shorter news item left i think we've talked about the spanish association to protect the sick from pseudoscientific therapies before they have created the international manifesto against pseudotherapies and they have asked scientists and health health professionals all over europe to sign it the goal is to raise awareness and to end certain European laws that actually are protecting pseudoscientific so-called treatments such as homeopathy today. It also covers and, and protects acupuncture, Reiki, German new medicine and many, many more. As of now, the manifesto has been signed by over 2000 people, but they are looking for more. So uh, we will put the links in the show notes again and urge as many as possible to go and sign that document online. Of course. All right. Let's move on. Uh, we still have a batch of those wonderful, very, very nice greetings uh, from fellow skeptics. So let's listen to more of those. Congratulations on 200 shows. It's a fantastic achievement. It takes a while to get there, but uh, it's a great thing, isn't it? 200 shows is uh, is, is quite... A, I mean, we did it a while ago. But we did it a while ago. <laughs> it's, still, it's still... It's an impressive achievement to do 200 of anything, to be honest. It is. Yeah, 200 press-ups. Yeah, 200 C. Yeah. That's, that's, that's quite impressive. That's that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, congratulations yeah. on, on 200 episodes. I think that's fantastic. And here's the next 200 as well. Hey, this is Brian from Glasgow Skeptics here. Oh, and occasional ESP presenter. Just wanted to wish Pontus, Yelena and the Corpse of Andrash uh, congratulations on reaching show number 200. An amazing achievement. And I'm really happy that I played just a small part in that along the way. So all the best, guys. Keep up the great work. And here's to the next 100 shows. Hi, this is Mandy Lee Noble, Diet Skeptic from the Skeptic Zone podcast. And I'd like to wish all the people at the ESP podcast a happy 200 episodes. Uh, I believe that we don't have a really wrong segment today. Do we, do we have something to talk about, Pontus? 
No, I was of... I was thinking that if we can manage today when we are recording our 200 episode exactly. n- nothing can be really wrong with the world if we can do that. So let's skip that. <laughs> okay, so this is a really right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were Basically. right to start the podcast. Okay, so I think since we haven't got um, a usual quote either, I think uh, especially that Star Wars season is upon us again, because by the end of the year, we will all have seen the last Star Wars movie. I have tickets for the premiere. No way, are you? The whole family, we're going next week. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's it's amazing that your whole family is so enthusiastic about it that you go you're going together. I yeah. you're just a bunch of lovely people. Really. Nerds, yes. Yeah. I love nerds. Okay. So I was thinking even though it has nothing to do with Europe and European skepticism, we will leave with this quote this week on the occasion of our 200th episode. I hope you will recognize it. Do or do not. There is no try. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Uh, That was that was the words, the very wise words of Master Yoda. Do or do not. There is no try. When um, Luke was just, uh, he said he said to one of the tasks that, yeah, okay, I will try, Uh, (laughs) but very skeptically. So we were very skeptical when we first decided to start a new show, but I'm very happy that we stuck with the idea, and it's been an amazing adventure with you guys, uh, Yelena and Pontus. Yeah, it's been fun, really. And it still is. It is, it is, and uh, I really hope that we will all have the opportunity to keep doing this, and uh, I would like to use Richard Saunders's words that we started this show with. Here's to the next 200 Woo-hoo. or more. Woo-hoo. Cheers! Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, and I'd like to thank our dear listeners for tuning in and celebrating with us. This has been the 200th episode, and we'll come back with more. Woohoo! Until next week, goodbye. Bye bye. Paka paka. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Now, just like Europe, you're probably multilingual. Can you do a bit of a greeting in another language at all? Um, Russian? 
Yeah, whatever you like. Yeah. No, I don't speak Russian. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks okay. a lot. Okay, I'll, I'll, I can yeah. I can write in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, oh wow, my God. Um, Lena Pontus Vandas, Mazal Tov, Lechvod Podcast Mispar Matayim. אני לא יודע אם אני אומר את זה נכון, יהיו ישראלים בקהל שלא יאהבו את זה, אבל אחרי 20 שנה באוסטרליה, העברית שלי לא כמו שהייתה. ברכות ולהתראות.